sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi everyone, it's Sarah Cunningham here from the Victorian Professional Education Committee. Today, it's my pleasure to be talking with Dr. Kimberly Docking from the University of Sydney. Welcome, Kimberly, and thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Kimberly, you have a particular interest in working with children with acquired neurological communication disorders. Yeah. Particularly working with children diagnosed with brain cancer and leukaemia. How did you first become involved in this area of speech pathology practice? Yeah, of course. Um, look, I, I think I need to uh, go back to just being an undergrad student and had a um, one-off guest lecture from um, Dr Faye Jordan at the time who came across from the Royal Children's Hospital um, in Brisbane and um, while I was studying at UQ. And, um, yeah, she talked to us about acquired brain injury and I was absolutely riveted. So that sort of developed into me getting in touch and um, actually doing a, a vacation research scholarship with her the following summer. Um, so that was amazing. It was my first time dipping my toes into research too and working with that population. So working with particularly a little girl who'd had a stroke and at the time I had no idea children could have strokes. Um, so that was an incredible um, experience. And then that turned into an honours uh, sort of project in acquired brain injury. And then my first job as a new grad, I picked up a locum position part-time working in the rehabilitation setting. And to this day, those children, all their variety of, um, uh, you know, diagnoses and experiences in that setting truly shaped what, you know, my career and my just absolute passion for working with these kids and families. Um, and yeah. Yeah. A real, pa it's a true passion, isn't it? It's, it's been with you the whole time. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really early on. And I think that's why it had such an impact on me. And I can still remember those kids and their families. They just will never, yeah, they always stay with you. So that really motivated me to not only work clinically with these kids, but to find out more and to sort of do what I could to, yeah, unpack what was happening for them. Yeah, that's amazing. It is a definitely a very specific area of clinical practice. Yeah. Um, can you share why this area is so important? Yeah, for sure. I feel like um, it's such a privilege to work with these children and families and a lot of their conditions are quite rare and, you know, all the different presentations of ages and traumatic experiences or diagnoses such as children with brain cancer and leukaemia. Um and I know as a clinician, I would, you know, want to um, completely um, adhere to evidence-based practice, but was really quite surprised at how little there was available at the time. And so, 
yeah, that really motivated me to sort of dig deeper and, you know, go into do a PhD and sort of a research, um, yeah, into research in that area. So um, that, you know, really sort of shaped where I wanted to go with that. Um, surprisingly, I think historically um, in research, they absolutely are a vulnerable um, population, but uh, I think that meant that a lot of researchers kind of steered clear of those families, and yet that's been the complete opposite for me. I've uh, surprisingly had like a hundred percent recruitment rate with children with brain cancer and their families, which blows my mind because I think that those children are going through so much of the time and I'm always finding families say to me look you know we know this may not help our child but if it can help the children that come behind them and provide more information for those families then you know sign us up and there's often families who are you know looking to be involved with all the appointments and all the goings on and different people so um, it really fulfills a gap that was that was there and I'm just yeah really privileged to be able to work with those families to provide more information for them. Absolutely and such an amazing contribution from those families isn't it to be a part uh, yeah. and yeah, yeah not necessarily for their own benefit which is incredible yeah. Yeah for sure. So with this in mind Kimberly. I guess I'd like to know, what do you wish clinicians knew about this really specialised area of research and clinical practice? What are some of your tips? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a really diverse population. So children with acquired um, brain injury in general are very diverse. And, you know, decades ago, they used to group them together and um, even, but, you know, the different age groups, the the different ages that they have their diagnoses or accidents or um, incidents, um, all of the associated medical treatments that happen. And so particularly for children with brain cancer or leukemia with cancer that affects, you know, has um, involves treatment of their brain. Um, they, uh, it certainly presents in a variety, you know, a, a myriad of ways. So what we do know um, when we, as a population, although they're different ages and, and all sorts of different things that um, can go on for these kids. So they would have had different treatment combinations and some might have had surgery, some might have just had chemotherapy or radiotherapy um, and different times since that has happened. Um, what we do know is that often um, it's not, you know, if, if we assess them early on before, you know, at discharge or early on in their recovery, often these children will, pres will have recovered the skills that they actually had say prior to an accident or their early developmental skills it is a little bit trickier to tease out when a brain tumor had started developing in their brain so to have a pre and a post presentation is a, is a harder one but we do know um, we can look at certain features but often um, children will recover those earlier developmental skills quite well but the, what happens is the acquired presentation impacts the development of their future skills, so their future communication skills, their future language skills. Um, so more around those sorts of communication skills as opposed to motor speech, which if it's impacted, we will see that quite immediately, um, either you know, pre-surgery or afterwards. Um, 
So what is really important is that we dig a little deeper and, you know, families and, and children themselves and teachers will um, often report that, you know, something's just not quite the same or, you know, things aren't um, going along as great as they could be. So it's important for us that functionally it has a big impact. So the social language skills, those really higher level advanced communication competencies, cognitive communication skills, executive function skills that, you know, relate in with language quite quite a lot as we know um, they're the they're the they're the skills that are most impacted and so for kids and their academic lives their social lives interacting with friends and hanging out and social media that's the big impact and so for them that's a huge functional impact whereas a lot of the tests that tests that we will put them through early on and you know we might have a, a screener or a battery of tests often don't tap into those specific skills unless we're really specifically or deliberately looking for them. So that would certainly be my advice um, is to just dig deeper for those kids to find. It's not what we want to, we don't want to find something wrong if it doesn't show that there is, but um, in our assessments, just be quite broad, use observations and all the amazing tools that clinicians use, but just do um, do I encourage people to sort of to do that and go that um, go to that length it's well worth it um, for these kids. Um, I understand that you have recently been involved in writing some clinical guidelines on communication and pediatric dysphagia related to brain tumors and cancer. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Yes, absolutely. Um, very proud of this work and the team that I've worked um, with. Um, we basically, I've, you know, was involved clinically with these children, but also, you know, um, in research and, you know, chipping away at, at the evidence base and contributing in that way. And I just found that these families were the information we're still not getting through to the clinicians in the hands of the clinicians who really need it. And, you know, through my discussions with lots of clinicians around the needs of these kids and also the families. So I thought, well, I need, you know, this is a priority for me to really make sure that um, I can provide, you know, or be involved in developing um, evidence-based recommend recommendations and really put all that literature together um, in a way that um, was approved um, by NHMRC and endorsed so that we knew we had some really good reliable recommendations as a speech pathology community. So very proud of the work of the team that we've been able to put this together and hopefully will be a really useful resource for, for clinicians. Um, yeah, so that's sort of how that sort of came about, the development of that. Um, yeah, really linking that evidence into practice, which I guess was your original motivation, wasn't it, to get yeah. more evidence. So that's fantastic. That's right. Kimberly, for those clinicians working with simil similar clinical populations, do you have any advice or suggestions for building skills in this area? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the important thing with these kids, and if I talk about, say, children with brain cancer and leukaemia, they're really um, all clinicians, I think, are eventually going to meet these children. So what my what I um, what has come out with these recommendations and certainly is in the literature is that um, 
you know, one we know, and I know, you know, from current data that it's a brain tumours and cancers in children in general are actually on the rise. So they're becoming, you know, the incidence rates are going up, but the survival rates are also going up. So all the amazing medical treatments are, you know, doing wonders for these kids. So that means more and more of these children are having the amazing opportunity to, to actually think about their futures, to go on to, to live their life and, and, and plan their future for which they need communication, for which they need all of the skills that we we are all invested and passionate about. So because they've got that sort of life ahead, a lot of clinicians will be meeting them in schools, in communities, you know, in private practices. And a lot of these children actually often in their communication don't present with the difficulties early on. They actually quite often will recover the skills that they've sort of had earlier on in their development, but it's often down the track that things become a little bit more difficult for them. So it's those more advanced communication skills and, you know, jokes and metaphors and social language and all of those sorts of things. So yes, motor speech is an acute presentation. So the speech side of things is often treated quite early and, and followed as necessary as our swallowing skills. But those communication skills can be quite a lasting legacy for these children. So what my suggestion is to clinicians is do what you do. Be amazing at what you do, your assessment, your treatment protocols, you know, assess, dig deep, look at all the subtle areas, you know, dig deeper than your um, global batteries and you will uncover um, the subtle difficulties in those areas that parents and teachers and the kids themselves will report that, you know, things aren't just, something's not quite right or, you know, their social language or their academic learning is impacted. For them, functionally, it's a big impact, but it may not always come up with a gl glaringly obvious standardised score sort of result that you might want. Um, and that's not always easy for funding and things like that. But yeah, I would just say to clinicians, be the amazing clinicians you are, but keep an eye out for these kids. They need monitoring. Um, they need to yeah, be followed long term so that when these things, then when these difficulties and disorders arise that everyone's prepared and ready. So I guess we also need to be advocating for families that they may need to advocate later down the track because there may be a gap then I guess between services is that what you see sometimes? Absolutely and that's certainly the gap that we're aiming to fill is um, for families to link the families as advocates from that early time during treatment and cancer treatment and you know children with neurological um, diagnoses and, and sort of parents aren't afraid of information. I think sometimes we sort of you know feel hesitant about addressing these big issues because their first question often is, will my child survive? And then they sometimes can feel a bit guilty about, okay, now I've got my child, which is all I ever hoped and prayed for. And now I'm asking, what does, what's their future look like? But we've really got to um, empower them and, and uh, you know, to, to ask those questions and to be ahead of that. And, and it's okay to think about the finer details. Of course it is. And to support them in that and to give them the information and resources because they've already had a lot of scary information. They've been called about an accident or perhaps they've been part of that or, or they've had a terrible news or something. And so 
yeah, they're, they're incredible families. I um, So to support them in that way is definitely important. Yeah, knowledge is power, I think, isn't it? it? Sure is. <laughs> um, yeah. My goodness, I think there's so many mes- uh, take-home messages from our chat today, but definitely looking at that immediate treatment and then also the long-term planning for these amazing clients and their families. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Kimberly Docking, thank you so much for your ongoing contribution to speech pathology practice and for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's been lovely to be able to chat with you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.